the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into hour two. Kind of a unique day. Uh, it's a two-monologue day. I gave my first monologue of the day in the first hour, and then we covered the Hunter Biden, Merrick Garland FBI story and had a issue on um, a really interesting issue on the EPA and a new regulation that would uh, have devastating consequences for our economy. And if you missed any of that, you can go to our website at 960 The Patriot and pick that up. Uh, second monologue, I promise, because we had a caller on this question yesterday asking me to get into it. John called yesterday and asked me to tell the story of my political conversion from left to right. And I thought I don't want it to be in any sense self-serving, but maybe maybe I thought I could pitch it in the way of how we can recruit other conservatives or Republicans to our cause. My story isn't that unique, I don't think. My biggest worry, though, these days is it may not be replicable for others, at least not in the way that I did it. So we're going to have to find other ways. It's a worry anyway. I'm not exactly sure when I first realized it was serious time to question the left. I grew up as a leftist, as some of you know. I was, I mean, really pretty hard left. I was a member of the Youth Socialist Alliance. And when I went off to college, I was thinking I would, you know, bolster my left-wing bona fides and help change the world as a left-wing poli-sci major. I was committed to helping the poor. I believed in keeping sacrosanct the Bill of Rights. I I loathed racism. I was a big believer in human rights. I thought welfare should be expanded to help the poor. I thought drugs should be legalized. I thought our military buildup was a bad idea and came at the cost of helping the poor, especially minorities. And I thought tax reform should mean taxing the wealthier more. That's what I grew up believing. I think my first questioning of the left I associated with was when I entered a socialist bookstore here in town. And the first book I saw prominently displayed was titled The Zionist Lie or something like that. I I leafed through it and I saw the whole book was basically a lie wedded to a several conspiracy theories, an anti-Israel screed that swallowed whole the PLO line that Israel should not exist and that it did exist only at the expense of Palestinian human and civil rights. But I had been to Israel and studied that part of the world. I knew what terrorism was, having studied that as well, as it always fascinated me. And I knew that if human rights were a concern, especially in the Middle East, Israel was the answer, not the problem. There was no country in the world, and there still isn't, that grants minorities, especially Arabs, more civil and human rights than any other in the Middle East or perhaps the world outside of America and perhaps Europe. The more I looked into it, the more uneasy I became with my socialist credentials as I realized the entirety of the PLO, and particularly Yasser Arafat and every single branch of the PLO affiliated with socialism and Marxist movements and put itself in league and association and alliance with self-declared socialist and Marxist countries and revolutionaries around the world. I suppose the second thing that got me 
was a jarring incident that had me seriously and for the first time wonder about how to go about ending racism. I was a freshman in college and took an upper-class psychology course. On my first paper, I received a B-. I had a friend, a senior, who was in that course, and he got an A-, and I asked if I could read his paper. It was one of the worst things I ever read. Not necessarily in its conclusions. I could hardly get to those. It was close to illiterate, full of grammatical and spelling errors, sentences that didn't quite jibe, just chock full of wrong. Had I turned in a piece of writing like that in the eighth grade, I probably would have gotten a D- minus or an F. I went to meet my professor to discuss all this, and she said something very close to this, quote, your paper was a good start. This is, after all, an upper-level course. You're just not there yet, and you should have probably thought about integrating this or that X, Y, and Z thought. I asked about my friend getting an A-, and she said, and I asked how that this could possibly be, given the quality of his paper. And she said, well, I know his background, where he came from. I've had him in my classes before, and he has just grown so much over the last several years, but you have to understand his background. What was his background, was my question. Hispanic American, grew up in South Central L.A. It was something I never thought of. He was just my friend. The second thing I thought, how come the professor didn't ask or give a damn about my background? I don't have a great word for it, but my friend and I were each judged by our race, by our races. I didn't have a good phrase for it at the time, but Shelby Steele, some years later, would write exactly what this was as would George W. Bush put a famous label on it. Shelby Steele's line about race-based judgments in education leading to what was generally known as affirmative action would become perfect. He called it, quote, the permanent stigma of questionable competence. The permanent stigma of questionable competence. Of course, many of you know Bush's line, the soft bigotry of low expectations. But I knew then, before either of these phrases were known to me, this was all just plain wrong, morally wrong. I had grown up, grown up knowing well the then-famous Bakke case, and my family was very committed to civil rights, teaching me a ton about Martin Luther King Jr. Cesar Chavez even stayed at our cabin once. The Bakke case cited the language I loved and that all Americans should love. Quote, distinctions between citizens solely because of their ancestry are by their very nature odious to a free people, close quote, especially a people dedicated to the notion of equality. I got a quick lesson on what Bakke went through, and I got a quick lesson on soft bigotry, judgments by skin color, and permanent stigmas. The next year, I became the editor of my college's newspaper. Well, it was actually five colleges. It was a five-college paper because there were five colleges there, Pitzer, Claremont McKenna, Harvey Mudd, Pomona, and Scripps. And there was a famous conservative professor. I quoted him in my first-hour monologue, and I thought he was a right-wing nut at the time. He had written some odious op-eds, I had thought, and he was to deliver a major speech in Claremont that was well-promoted. It was titled, The Reichstag is Still Burning. It was on the problems of higher education. I decided I'd go and cover it and see what this idiot was all about. I knew only a little bit about him, namely that his expertise was Aristotle and that he had written Barry Goldwater's famous 1964 speech with the lines, extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice, moderation in the pursuit of justice 
is no virtue. His name was Harry Jaffa. I went to the auditorium, and I recall Professor Charles Kessler, who we interviewed here about a week or so ago. Uh, I went to the auditorium, and I recall Professor Charles Kessler's introduction of him. The date was April 14th, because as Kessler concluded his introduction of Jaffa, he said, It is odd that we do this here today on the anniversary of the shooting of Harry Jaffa's favorite political figure, Abraham Lincoln. The difference between Jaffa and Lincoln, though, is that Harry would have shot back. (laughs) Get to know Harry, you know that was true. I didn't know Jaffa was a Lincoln lover, much less scholar at the time. In addition to being perhaps the greatest living Aristotle scholar, he was also the greatest living Lincoln scholar, I would learn. Anyway, Jaffa approached the microphone and said, can everyone hear me? At which point about 25 students stood up with signs that said silence equals death and walked out as a form of protest. Protests were more civil then. I then wrote an editorial on all all that, and in the editorial I said, while Harry Jaffa's views are abominable, the protesters should have heard him out and confronted him with questions. The day that printed in the newspaper, I got a call from Dr. Jaffa on the phone, and he said, so you think my views are abominable? How about debating me? And I said, sir, I'm just a runny-nosed sophomore. There's a (laughs) there's a disparity here. You're a world-renowned intellect, and I'm not really going to debate you. And he invited me. He said, how about we get a cup of coffee then? How could I turn that down? So we met for coffee and talked and talked and talked and talked, probably for three hours. I took a class of his, as he invited me to do. I would visit him in his office, often to challenge him. And He walked me through a tour of conservative thought I'd never been exposed to, didn't even know existed, starting with Commentary Magazine. He walked me through many of his essays and books. He gave me essays on every question I had and spent hours with me discussing them. Long and short, he took my hand, I grabbed it, and never let go. Long and short, I'd never even been exposed to conservative intellectualism. And what did I learn along the way? In short, to use a quote I always loved from Dr. Dennis Teddy, he's a scholar in Washington, D.C., he was a student of another great, he, another great conservative professor, Walter Burns. He said, Walter Burns taught me that a professor could love America. Harry Jaffa taught me why. I learned all about how our founding was beautiful and unique. I learned that if I cared about the poor, two things mattered, family and education. I learned that if I cared about the poor, the current welfare system, which endowed fatherlessness, was about the worst thing to do for and to the poor. I learned that school choice and excellence in education was not to be found in the current education system, which had no accountability but cost ever greater amounts to produce ever less quality. I learned that if I cared about equality and racism, our Declaration of Independence, Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, and Martin Luther King showed the way. That to get beyond race, we had to get beyond race. That segregation is a badge of slavery and integration is the way out. And that socialists have re embraced the former, while we conservatives the latter. I learned that if I cared about things like the Bill of Rights, minority rights, freedom of association and thought, places like the Soviet Union were the true repressors and oppressors, and that I had been reading propaganda and not listening to the dissidents from there, that just because something says Pravda, truth, doesn't mean it is. I learned that if I cared about maintaining this, the last best hope of Earth, the military was the beginning of saving it. Not the problem, but a critical necessity, and that those who loathed it were in league with those who loathed liberty and equality and all I held dear. I learned, in short, 
an awful lot. So my worry. First, they don't make professors like Harry Jaffa anymore. World-class scholars, never mind professors who take that kind of one-on-one time with students. So, as you know, I've kind of proposed something else for our, shall we call it, conservative evangelization around here. And it's borrowed from the ex-slavery movement. Each one teach one. It's actually a beautiful sentiment, born of a terrible past. It's been defined as each one teach one. It's been defined as the phrase that originated when African Americans were denied education, including learning how to read. Many, if not most, enslaved people were kept in a state of ignorance about anything beyond their immediate circumstances, which were under control of owners, the lawmakers, and the authorities. When an enslaved person learned or was taught to read, it became their duty then to teach someone else, spawning the phrase, each one, teach one. And that's where we are ideologically today, with the left denying our ability to educate, speak, and teach. So we have to do it ourselves, individually, especially those of us who crossed ideological Rubicons ourselves and left the ideological reservations and plantations of the left. And I suggest we might start on the issue of race. It is one of the dominant issues of our time. It is the issue the left thinks can be used against us. And it is fraught with hypocrisy and idiocy and, ironically enough, actual racism. You see, I still think King was right, as I think Frederick Douglass was, and as I think Benjamin Curtis was. Do you ever hear that name, Benjamin Curtis? Do you know who he was? He wrote a great dissent in a case you do know, Dred Scott. You don't hear it much. There were dissent. There was a dissent in the Dred Scott case, and he said, To allege that the founders intended to say that the creator of all men had endowed the white race exclusively with the great natural rights which the Declaration of Independence asserts is a reproach of inconsistency. That whole notion, he said, was a violation of natural right. He went on, quote, It has been often asserted that the Constitution was made exclusively by and for the white race. It has already been shown that in five of the 13 original states, black people then possessed the elective franchise and were among those by whom the Constitution Constitution was ordained and established. If so, is it not true in point of fact that the Constitution was still made exclusively by the white race? It could not be. And that it was made exclusively for the white race is, in my opinion, not only an assumption not warranted by anything in the Constitution— but contradicted by its opening declaration that it was ordained and established by the people of the United States for themselves and their posterity. And as free black people were then citizens of at least five states, and so in every sense part of the people of the United States, they were among those for whom and whose posterity the Constitution was ordained and established. Close quote. The left today can embrace the history of America that Roger B. Taney who authored the, Dec- the Dred Scott decision, gave it when he said our founding did not convey rights to the black people and that the white, any, not any rights that the white man was bound to respect. I've never embraced that. I never will. It's an ongoing curiosity to me that the 1619 Project and the critical race theorists follow Roger B. Taney and not Benjamin Curtis. Anyway, that's my story.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Open lines here. Um, let's see. Yes, I want to spend some more time on some other angles on this Merrick Garland Department of Justice whistleblower Hunter Biden thing. By the way, this this is this is they they just they want to throw salt in this. They want to throw salt in the gears and our wounds at the same time. They they think so little of us. They think so little of us. On Monday, Hunter Biden gets a plea deal where he pleads guilty to federal charges of tax evasion. Okay? He pleads guilty to federal crimes on Monday. It's a sweetheart deal. But nonetheless, he pled guilty to federal criminal charges. By Thursday, that is to say last night, he's invited to the White House for a state dinner. Yucking it up, full tuxedo at the White House, giving him and all the other guests full regalia. A reporter asked Jean, uh, excuse me, Corinne Jean-Pierre a really good question about this. He said, can you walk us through how Hunter Biden gets, pleads guilty to federal crimes on Monday and gets invited to a state house dinner, a state dinner at the White House on Thursday. And she said a lot of other presidents' children have obviously come to state dinners. Yes, the reporter said, but they haven't pled guilty the same week to federal crimes. She said, well, I'm not going to get in again. I'm not going to get into anything having to do with the president's son. None of this has to do with the president. How can they keep saying none of this has to do with the president? Because the reporter really had the best of follow-ups. The reporter said, let's try it this way. If Hunter's last name wasn't Biden, do you think there's anyone in the country who could have pled guilty to federal crimes on Monday and been invited to the White House for a state dinner on Thursday? And she said, I'm just not going to get into it. None of this has to do anything with the president. It has a lot to do with the president. If what Hunter Biden said in that now unencrypted or decrypted text is right. It has a lot to do with the president. And when people look at the kinds of crimes he pled guilty to, where he will now evade any time in incarceration, and you have Americans who have pled guilty to those same crimes who had to face incarceration, and now you have two whistleblowers at the same time, two experienced and respected whistleblowers at the same time saying the U.S. attorney was under pressure from letting them do their job to investigate Hunter Biden fully, and Merrick Garland is denying it in a press conference today. But we now have emails I'm going to share with you in the other segment. It means that the House has to, has to call the U.S. attorney, has to call Merrick Garland, has to call the commissioner of the IRS and see who's telling the truth. We now have more emails. I'll share them with you when we come back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 
I know that it's often easy to have your eyes glaze over a lot of names that are involved in scandals that have to do with the IRS and the Department of Justice and the FBI, and in this case, Hunter Biden. This one's actually fairly easy if you just keep one eye on a part of the ball here. And it's really interesting. Again, to recap, you have two credible whistleblowers with a lot of experience and a lot of credibility who are claiming that the U.S. attorney, uh, David Weiss, who struck the deal with Hunter Biden, was pressured by the Department of Justice to go easy and that he didn't have the authority to actually indict or prosecute Hunter Biden to the full extent of the law. Now, Merrick Garland today denied this in a press conference. U.S. US Attorney General Merrick Garland denied that this was true and said David Weiss had all the authority and was operating with complete sovereignty on this. Well, as John Hinderocker puts it, Merrick Garland has sworn that U.S. Attorney David Weiss was in charge of the criminal investigation of Hunter Biden and made all the charging decisions. Two whistleblowers have denied that claim and have said that and have said that Garland's Department of Justice interfered with and essentially deep-sixed the investigation so that Hunter got off with a ridiculous slap on the wrist and was back attending a state dinner at the White House yesterday. That's America's two-tier system of justice in action. Again, I'll repeat the reporter's question to Karen Jean-Pierre. I thought it was perfectly poised. If Hunter's last name was anything but Biden, and he had had to plead guilty to federal crimes on Monday, would he be invited to a White House state dinner that very week? John writes, Now, it looks like Merrick Garland may not be in possession of the facts, or he's lying. Gary Shapley is the IRS employee who is the key whistleblower. There's two, but he's the key whistleblower on the fake Hunter investigation. His boss at the IRS was Daryl Waldron, and this email is from Shapley to Michael Batdorf, who is part of the IRS's criminal investigation decision. It's an email I'm looking at right now. John Hinderocker posts it. And it's from Gary Shapley to Michael Batdorf and a CC to Waldron. It describes a meeting that apparently included David Weiss from Gary Shapley to Michael Batdorf. Mike, Daryl asked me to shoot an update from today's meeting. Daryl, feel free to comment if I miss something. One, discuss discussion about the agent leak requested the sphere stay as small as possible. DOJ will be notified. FBI is notified and they refer it to their counterintelligence squad in a field office. C, we need to make a referral. What do you need from me on this action item? Two, Weiss stated that he is not the deciding person on whether charges are filed. To A, I believe this to be a huge problem, inconsistent with DOJ public position and Merrick Garland's testimony. This was from October of 2022. The key language, Weiss stated that he is not the deciding person on whether charges are to be filed. A, I believe this to be a huge problem, inconsistent with DOJ position. Now remember, Shapley asked Waldron to comment if I missed something. Here's Waldron's reply to both of them. Good morning, all. 
Thanks, Gary, shapely. You covered it all. I'm taking care of referrals. Mike, let me know if you have any questions. You got it all right, he said. His supervisor said, you got it. Weiss is not in charge of deciding the prosecution and the level of prosecution, whether charges are filed. Two questions. One, is the evidence against Joe Biden piling up so fast that he may be unable to finish his term as the Democrats have planned? And two, is there now enough evidence to begin impeachment proceedings against Merrick Garland? Well, let's ask him to testify and go from there. This email needs to be in the newspapers tomorrow. We'll test out the New York Times' interest in the story that they put on A15 today by whether it's in the newspapers tomorrow, Sunday, and Monday. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-5080-960. Young David, what's your political pins say today? Do you have one on? I do. It's very tiny. Okay. What do we got? It says, I'm for Dick Nixon. Oh, okay. It's a Nixon pin from <laughs> any number of campaigns, I suppose. This is about five years it could be from. This one's from 1960. Do you have any for his uh, governor governor's race? Uh, yeah, I do, actually. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. And I've got a, a clicker from that. Do you know? Do you remember the political clickers? They no. were popular at the conventions. Oh, really? I'll just instead in. of cl- yeah, so yeah. people's hands didn't get sore from clapping or something. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that's exactly what it is. He um, ran for governor in '62, uh, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, governor of California. And the reason I'm wearing this is yeah. because uh, I yes. f- failed to mention yesterday <laughs> that yesterday was the 30th anniversary of uh, Pat Nixon going to meet her creator. Oh, is that right? Yeah, and I, I, I. I didn't mention that to you. I remember watching that yeah, funeral, yeah. actually. I remember watching it on TV. I remember him being broken up, mm-hmm. the old man crying. And you, uh, you've you been on a Nixon kick lately. You I guess so. Earlier this week, I think we I showed you that... Uh, a new biography coming out. Yes, yeah. that's right. But in an interesting bit of political uh, uh, trivia, I guess, uh, 50 years ago this week... Nixon and Brezhnev had a summit That's together, right. and during That's that right. summit, gave him a, a Lincoln or a Nixon Cadillac gave or Brezhnev yeah. a brand new 1973 yeah. Lincoln Continental. Yeah, yep. yeah. Brezhnev loved those uh, luxury cars. cars. Yeah, yeah, luxury cars, lo- luxury houses. You know, the revolution really pays off if you, if you're at the top of it. Not so much for people in the bread lines. Nixon was such a complex figure. Um, William Buckley once called him the Aztec calendar stone of the 20th century. It's a nice phrase, the Aztec calendar stone of the 20th century. A friend of mine and and I were talking about Nixon. And part of the relevance of this is, you know, all these scandals have nothing on, I guess the phraseology would be, Watergate has nothing on any of these scandals with regard to the Bidens. These Biden scandals are so much worse than what took place in Watergate and at much higher levels of responsibility and not by campaign operatives, but by actual efforts from within the Department of Justice and the FBI. And um, my friend of mine was asking me the other day when we were talking about that, was Nixon a good president? And that itself is a very complicated question, isn't it? I said, well, if you're a conservative... You know, there's the old, (laughs) 
I've told this story before. It's one of my favorites. When the Nixon administration wanted to put William Buckley on a delegation of the United Nations, uh, it was Haldeman who called him and said uh, to Buckley, is there anything you've done that would embarrass the president? And Buckley said, no, but the president's done an awful lot to embarrass me. Um, you think uh, if you're a conservative, think of think of some of the things Nixon gave you. OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, uh, race-based affirmative action. Two of the Supreme Court justices that made Roe versus Wade the law of the land, and. Um, if you care about Taiwan, I only remind an audience of something you brought to my attention, young David, a while ago, which was, you know, there was a Republican effort to remove Nixon from re-election based on the entire issue of Taiwan, right, and the candidacy of John Ashbrook, who Buckley endorsed in that race on the issue of Taiwan. Um, so was he a good president? It's it's a mixed question, isn't it? It's a mixed question. He, of course, also gave us the suffix of gate to every scandal we ever go through <laughs> from now on, right? Yeah. Everything is gate. Um, anyway, do you call him a good president? I think he's a pretty good president. I mean, when we look at, like, the SALT treaties. Yeah. But the problem is the Soviet Union didn't respect those in the end. Which is why Reagan opposed him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Kissinger, mixed bag. Mixed bag in Especially yeah. on China. Yeah. I, it's it's all it's more about the I'm not I, I was not for I would not have been for the salt treaties. I would have been with Reagan on those. It I think it's much more about the what ifs. If Watergate hadn't happened, yeah, what right. a second term had right. looked like. Right. And you might have seen Nixon ascend into some you know, one of the more, you know, greater But, but that record presidents. I read off is not great. The, you know, second terms are not typically great. Mm-hmm. That's always an issue. Second terms are not typically great for presidents. I know there were some weird plans. I've read that he, he wanted to work with Ted Kennedy to do some health care yeah, stuff. He wanted yeah. to get rid of the EPA yeah. in the second term later. Yeah, oh, he wanted to create it so he could get rid of it. <laughs> I, I think he did receive a lot of backlash. Yeah. All right. Well, my friend Josh Hammer... Um, you going to do another good movie based on my recommendations this week? You did The Graduate, which we are all thankful for. America, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next is Jaws. Next is Jaws, if I can find it for Same somewhere. actor. I mean, yeah. it'll be a tra- nice transition. Murray Hamilton, who played Mr. Robinson, plays the, uh, plays the mayor in, in uh, Amity in Jaws. Yes. So you, yes. Get, you get that. And you get another same actor. Name another actor in both movies. I, 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 Richard Dreyfus. Richard. Oh yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, Richard Dreyfus was in the in, in the graduate for a total of three seconds. It uh, counted. How many okay. movies were you in for? How many seconds? Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Back to the Hunter Biden thing. Um, important reading on Newsweek. I mean, I from my friend Josh Hammer, who is the editor at large at Newsweek uh, Opinions, Newsweek dot com. Uh, really important. He just he he does a very nice job of, of of writing through what is taking place here, how this took place, and where the eye on the ball needs to be. It's it's one thing. I'll, I'll reiterate it again because I don't want us to get lost. Uh, uh, in this case, by focusing on some trees, when it's the forest, the forest is the Department of Justice. Some trees are Hunter Biden and 
I don't know, maybe a business partner of his, maybe even, uh, maybe even several business partners of his. The forest is the Department of Justice, and that's the problem here. Hunter Biden is all but now just a free man. And, um, and yet, what it looks like to make him a free man was based on lies and obfuscations and insertions of authority and irrigations of power at the higher-ups at the Department of Justice. Josh Hammer writes out a few scenarios as to how this could have happened, how this did happen between Merrick Garland and Joe Biden. And uh, we'll, um, we'll, we'll walk you through it on the other side of this break. Yes, Karin Jean-Pierre got a lot of questions on it today. Yes, the New York Times put it on page A15 today, part of it. Yes, um, the media seems to be a little more animated about this than anything else that has ever had to do with the scandal about the Bidens. But don't, don't, don't think it's over for them. Don't think Biden's troubles are um, with the media for very long. I don't know if it'll last. These things usually don't. They usually go away with a day. You just need the word malarkey. There's nothing there. Or I'm proud of my son. With bank failures and talk of a recession, with inflation that's anything but transitory, with the ups and downs of the stock market, where do you go if you want to invest? Why Refi has an investment in a portfolio. It's got a high fixed rate of return, and it's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed. It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio from Y-Refi. They are based here locally, and I encourage you to stop by their offices on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I've been there, and you won't get a sales pitch, and no one's going to ask you to sign a thing. But when you do meet with the team at Y-Refi, you'll see why I like and trust them so much. And you can too. Y-Refi is a due diligence proof firm where you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-34, 888-Y-REFI-34. 34. Please, please do read Josh Hammer's piece at Newsweek. Uh, he writes, it's easy to envision how the whole sordid business may have gone down with the pressure on David Weiss to get a sweetheart deal for Hunter. U.S. Attorney for District of Delaware, David Weiss, calls Attorney General Merrick Garland to report his findings. Given the closely scrutinized nature of the investigatory subject, that is to say Hunter Biden, the president's son, Garland, like any good henchman, then calls his superior, the big guy, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And the big guy, in turn, then calls his wayward son, last seen in an Arkansas courthouse for a paternity child support hearing, to request a favor. Hunter, I love you, and I'll always be proud of you. But I need you to take this slap on the wrist so that all of our troubles go away. And so the deed was done. But what troubles exactly? Well, as it turns out, Don Corleone, the big guy of his own crime syndicate family, had nothing on Joe Biden. And Corleone certainly had nothing on Biden 
If the latest scuttlebutt of Biden family venality and quid pro quo corruption to the tune of millions of dollars pertaining to Burisma founder Mikola Zelachevsky's alleged 17 recorded phone calls with Joe and Hunter bear fruit. I predict it will. After all, Viktor Shokin, the Ukrainian prosecutor investigating Burisma, was unceremoniously sacked by the parliament of that notoriously corrupt country around the same time of the recorded Zlochevsky phone calls. Recall also that then-Vice President Joe Biden at the time was the Obama administration's designated point man on all things Ukraine, which is why he could brag about threatening to withhold money from Ukraine if they didn't fire the prosecutor Shokin. So much here. Read it. Josh, Josh Hammer at Newsweek.com. All right. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.